on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. There are also some blue Bibles scattered in some of the baskets in the seats in front of you. Exodus chapters 19 and 20, we'll be reading all of 19, and then you'll see just a little bit of chapter 20. As we mentioned earlier at the beginning of our service, this is the second Sunday in the Advent season, which basically means coming. Advent refers to coming, and during the Advent season, we're looking back at Jesus' first coming, and then we're looking forward to Jesus' second coming, his return. And we celebrate this season in large part to remember what God has done in the past so that we might trust him concerning the future as we sojourn through this world as Jesus followers in a world that is very difficult and complicated and sometimes very disorienting. So there's nothing sentimental about what we're doing here. This is, this is spiritually fortifying stuff that we're engaged with during the Advent season. All four messages in our Advent series involve mountains. Um, an intentional shout-out to the main series we're doing right now at City Church and the Sermon on the Mount. We'll pick up that service again, uh, that series, I, I should say, in January. But all four of the Advent messages are involving mountains in the Old Testament. And very importantly, all of these messages unpack critically important themes, big-time themes, related to the purpose of Jesus' first coming and what we're looking forward to as we wait expectantly for his return. So here we go, Exodus 19 and 20. Um, if you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Count the costs. This is a long passage, uh, but it's good for you. You need it this morning. Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain, or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that 
All the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now skip down to verse 18 after the Ten Commandments. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. This is a mighty word, Lord, um, that you have intended for us to consider in your word. And just the awesome power that's on display here reminds us that you are an awesome, powerful God, and we cannot approach you without help, and so we do ask for the help that your Holy Spirit promises to give us in exactly these kinds of settings, that we may not just read about you, but actually hear from you, and that we might experience the kind of transformation we've been talking about. I pray that people who are sitting here this morning, and, and frankly, when we're singing songs about the awe of God, aren't feeling that at all. I pray that you administer to them in particular this morning. We plead with you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In Exodus chapter 19, we encounter the Israelites as a crossed over people, referring to the Red Sea crossing, of people who are trying to find their spiritual moorings as they journeyed to the promised land. God had miraculously spared them from the plague of death that had wiped out Egyptian firstborns, and God had saved them out of Egyptian bondage. Many of us are familiar with this narrative, even if we've just seen a cartoon about it 20 years ago. But as you can see, if you back up and read through Exodus chapters 15 through 18, the Israelites continued to wrestle with a big-time sin problem, even though they'd seen God work time and time and time again in great power. Case in point, after crossing through the Red Sea, the Israelites immediately began to complain about their wilderness circumstances 
to Moses and to the Lord. I mean, there's a scene in chapter 15 where immediately after singing a praise song unto the Lord for vanquishing the marauding Egyptian army, immediately after that, the Israelites complained to Moses about a water shortage in the quality of the water that is available. Apparently, the you know, the God who reconfigured an entire sea can't be trusted now to provide the Israelites with some good drinking water. And in chapter 16, the people actually suggest that the Lord should have just killed them in Egypt rather than delivering them, even describing Egypt, check this out, and of course this is inaccurate, even describing Egypt, as you can see there, as a place you know, where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. All of a sudden, Egypt is like this, you know, all-inclusive sandals resort in the Bahamas. The weight of the circumstantial evidence strongly suggested that trusting and believing in God was the reasonable choice, and yet they balked because their memories failed them. Notice, by the way, that when our spiritual memories fail us, two things happen. One of them we talk about, I think, sometimes. The other one I'm not sure if we do talk about. Two things happen when our spiritual memories fail us. God always seems less wonderful than he really is. We talk about that one. But also, the alternatives to the freedom and the flourishing that God brings us Alternatives that ultimately bind us, they seem more wonderful than they really are. Spiritual amnesia, two impacts. Number one, God seems less wonderful than he really is, and the alternatives to God start seeming amazing. Egypt is a place where there's meat pots, and we would just you know, sit there and, and have wonderful conversations together. Spiritual amnesia, it totally obstructs our view of God's glory, and then it assigns this absurd artificial glory to our idols. Thus, the remembering that we do at Advent. I said this already, I'm going to say it again. The remembering that we do at Advent, it is, it is hardly sentimental. It's actually a cosmic, I'm serious here, a cosmic countering of the amnesia that otherwise bankrupts us spiritually. How's that for reframing Advent? Tragically for the Israelites, so this was just the beginning of their ongoing unbelief and rebelliousness, things becoming progressively worse over time. So what did God do about it? Number one, he sent the Israelites various kinds of tests, basically trials with a purpose, in order to expose the extent of their unbelief and then forge them spiritually, redirecting their hearts toward him that they might trust him. We talked about this same testing concept last week in the context of Abraham's life and the binding of his son Isaac. So number one, tests and trials. Number two, God spoke to the Israelites, warning them, rebuking them, correcting them, guiding them, and so forth. Both the testing and the speaking very often went hand in hand and were 
filled with grace, the God of grace, who is by nature merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and, and faithfulness. Exodus chapter 34. He, he spoke to them, he tested them because he is by nature a God of magnificent grace. Now let's make our way back to chapter 19, directing our attention to verses 1 through 3. After the Israelites defeated the Amalekites at Rephidim, they broke camp and made a three-day journey to the Sinai wilderness, eventually resetting their camp at the base of Mount Sinai. There's plenty, I can assure you, of debate about Sinai's precise location, but we're probably talking about 200 or so miles southeast of Cairo. A few years ago when we did a series in the book of Exodus, I found out that we had a legitimate Egyptologist in our congregation. Yes, we did. Which is, of course, one of the, the perils of preaching, you know, in this academic context among all of you niche experts. And, of course, you know, with the, who is, is wonderful, by the way, person, you know, it was, oh, it went 200 miles. Eh, it was probably more like 216.5 miles. And, you know, if you take out a topographical map, it's really spectacular, you know, and so on and so forth. Fine. Um, They set camp there, and then Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God, an ascension previously promised by God to Moses all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, when God originally called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Here's how the promise went, but I will be with you, Moses, and, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt you shall serve God on this mountain. This is that mountain, all the way here in Exodus chapter 19. And do you see how God is making good on his promises to Moses and making good on his promises to Israel, despite Israelite unfaithfulness? Do you see his church in Egypt, they messed around with idol worship in their captivity? After Egypt, they grumbled and they complained romanticizing about their bondage and surely their idols, but God still led them to the mountain. He promised it to Moses, and here he's keeping his promise. Why take the Israelites to this mountain? To test them. Once again, the Sinai experience was full of trials. And to speak to them specifically through Moses, who functioned as a mediator between God and the Israelites. As you can see time and time again in the Old Testament and Old Testament narratives, sinful human beings, including God's chosen people, could not expect to meet with God, especially if that meant seeing him and live to tell about it. God is by nature perfect and, and, and holy. He's set apart from anything and everything else in all of creation, and in being perfect, he will not and cannot present himself in the presence of sin. So God mediated his presence through Moses so he could meet with and speak to the Israelites without killing them. And Moses was qualified to be this priestly go-between role 
because he was born of the Levites, an Israelite tribe that God set aside specifically for priestly responsibilities. If we zoom out a bit here in Exodus chapter 19, we can see that the events that are taking place at Mount Sinai, they prefigure elements of the sacrificial system that the Lord is about to unveil and prescribe for the Israelites. Mount Sinai is this type of tabernacle or, or temple where the Lord meets with his people via the priests. Moses functions here as the Levitical high priest, the, the chief mediator between God and the Israelites, and then the Israelites are a kingdom of priests. Chapter 19, verse 6. And this is why, as you can see in chapter 19, verses 10 through 15, the Lord required the Israelites to consecrate themselves at Sinai, foreshadowing the consecration ultimately required of the Levitical priests before they began their priestly duties. Consecration that entailed washing their garments and abstaining from sexual relations in order to establish ceremonial purity before the Lord arrived. But only Moses could set foot on Mount Sinai because he was functioning as the high priest foreshadowing the high priest's exclusive access to the most holy place in the midst of the tabernacle once it was constructed. God even warned the Israelites accordingly. We, we saw this in verses 12 through 13. The, the wise person would go ahead and make some boundaries around the mountain for anyone who touches even the edge of the mountain will be put to death. And here's what God communicated to the Israelites at Sinai. Two primary themes. Number one, behold my awesome power and holiness. For example, verse 16, when God appeared on the mountain, what is often called a, a theophany, when he appeared on the mountain on the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that the people in the camp tremble. Also consider that Moses, after he came down the mountain, you can see this in Exodus chapter 34, Moses, after he came down the mountain, was literally shining on account of meeting with the Most High God and reflecting his light. So there's the first theme, behold my awesome power and holiness. That's, that's the light show and the sound show and, and the laser show and all of that. Theme number two, Israelites, this is how you should live. This is how you should live. Thus, the Ten Commandments that God unveils to Moses in chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, as well as the rest of the law that follows. Want to commune with me and, and flourish in this promised land that you're about to inhabit? Want to enjoy the deliverance that I graciously secured for you out of Egyptian bondage? Are you interested in any of that? Well, if so, here is how you should love me. And here is how you should love one another with mercy and justice. Do this and you will live well in the land. Do otherwise and you won't. Clearly, you can see this. You see how the second theme is related to the first? God calls the Israelites to the obedience 
spelled out for them in the Ten Commandments in the entire law because he's the all-powerful, holy God of the universe, and he knows what he's doing, and he is very interested in the well-being of his people. Well, the Israelites struggled to put all of this together, apparently thinking, as you would have too, I mean, we would have all thought this, they were apparently thinking that this power encounter with the Lord was simply going to leave them all dead. They thought they were going to get killed. And you see this in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. So Moses, kind of aware of all of this, he tried, he tried to clarify the situation by telling them, verse 20, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. That's the clarification. So which is it, Moses, that is not very clarifying? You're telling them, do not fear so that you can fear. Think of it like this. God could have given up on the Israelites on account of their sin. But he didn't. And that's probably what the Israelites were concerned about, at least to some degree, that God was finally just, you know, he's had it. But God remained with them, testing them. This language keeps coming up, just testing them in order to contend for their hearts, that they might love him with all of their heart and worship him exclusively with trembling awe. In other words, Fear him. That fear there, the fear of the Lord, it's, it's physical. It's not just emotional. Wow, that's really spectacular. I mean, it's like it's your, your trembling in awe and joyful awe of the Lord. And we'll come back to that. An apathetic God wouldn't have brought his people to Sinai at all. Not an apathetic God. An apathetic God, would he would, he would remain hands-off, allowing his people to live however they desire, operating in whatever manner they believe means, you know, being true to themselves. Want to go back to Egypt? Want to enjoy those meat pots? Go ahead. And then we would effectively amuse ourselves to death, the whole thing being very much like a really, really epic rave party on the deck of the Titanic. On the other hand, an unmerciful, quickly angered God would bring people to Sinai, all right, and he'd bring them there to wipe them out. But the true God, the God of Israel, God of all creation is revealed to us in these scriptures. He's neither apathetic nor unmerciful. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who he is. And so he brings his people to Sinai because he zealously cares for them and desires to transform them and reconfigure their hearts. Even though that transformation will involve some real difficulties and trials, even though that transformation will involve some uncomfortable communication that exposes and convicts and redirects. So he said a few weeks ago, Freedom is not the absence of restrictions and boundaries. Freedom is about discovering and embracing the right restrictions, the right boundaries. And it's about discerning who sets 
the appropriate boundaries for the sake of true freedom? Us or God? By the way, you can claim to be a Christian and still live as the functional boundary setter instead of God. All you need to do is, I don't know, you can vet everything in Scripture according to your own sensibilities and then dismiss everything you don't like on account of it being outdated or well-intentioned but misinformed or something like that. I would say that's not even a marginal version of Christianity these days. It's becoming fairly mainstream. But do you see that that posture is basically the polar opposite of what we find at Sinai? At Sinai, God spoke and the people listened, pledging, pledging obedience, completely overwhelmed by his power and glory, concerned that they might die. Here in 2022, I would say that some professing followers of Jesus are sort of camped at, at the anti-Sinai, impressed with their own you know, kind of modern, more informed insights, making announcements to God instead of listening to him, <clears throat> judging God according to our own standards instead of asking God to judge us according to his standards and refine us accordingly. True conversion. Ever wonder what a, a picture of conversion looks like? True conversion ends up looking something like this, borrowing language directly from Psalm 139. This is true conversion. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. True conversion. The humility in that passage is stunning considering our contemporary proclivity to search God to see if there's any offensive way in him. And everybody's spiritual journey, there is this fork in the road in which you decide if you are going to A, invite God to search you, or B, search God instead and then craft for yourself a comfortable, self-interested spirituality. Option A is Christianity. Option B is nothing of the kind, no matter how it looks or feels. Back to the narrative. Did things go well for the Israelites after Sinai? Not really. There are certainly some very beautiful glimpses of faithfulness and righteousness in Israel's story, but very often the Israelites fell again and again into their own forms of self-assuredness and idolatry, catalyzing all kinds of unfaithfulness. I just finished reading through the book of Judges, and boy, is that narrative rough cyclical unfaithfulness. Yet, the Lord remained faithful to Israel. But God remained faithful to Israel, continuing to speak to them after Sinai in various ways, notably through the prophets that the Lord sent them to warn them and in some cases encourage them, to galvanize them. And then came what we might call the ultimate theophany. You know where this is going. It's Advent, right? God the Father sent his only son, Jesus, 
into this world to live among us. And do you remember, this is wild, do you remember how Jesus' birth and life are described in the book of John chapter 1, verse 14? I'm not making this up. And the Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, in sending Jesus into this world, the incarnate Son of God, You see what's happening? God was speaking. He was speaking to us again. More profoundly than ever, eclipsing the grandeur of Sinai because Jesus is the very Word of God. And Jesus wasn't, therefore, just proclaiming a message. He was the message. Everything about God's nature and the work that God is doing in the world was and is encapsulated in Jesus. You know, Moses was a mediator with a message from God. Jesus was both the mediator and the message. And then, my goodness, the parallels between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Jesus just keep on coming for us. I mean, they keep coming for us like a, like a four-year-old at the park and knows there's snacks in the cooler. Just again and again and again and again and I mean, listen, God made it clear to the Israelites that they should listen to and obey the message that is the law that Moses was, was bringing down Mount Sinai. But then check this out. On yet another mountain, during the transfiguration scene that you can read about in Matthew and Mark and Luke, God spoke to Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, saying, this is Matthew chapter 17 and Of course, you're invited to turn there if you'd like. God spoke to Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, saying, as Jesus was transfigured on this mountain, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Sound familiar? But Jesus came and touched them, saying, <coughs> excuse me, came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. No one but Jesus only. Interesting. Yeah, because Jesus was previously accompanying on this mountain by Elijah and Moses. The echoes of Sinai here in Matthew 17 are fierce, are they not? I mean, God's power and glory and holiness are once again on display before his people. Moses is there. God's people are spooked. They are totally terrified. And God is speaking on a mountain. The specific mountain is is unknown and fodder for a lot of speculation. He's speaking again on a mountain, giving them a word. But on this particular mountain, The word is Jesus, the Son of God, the word who became flesh and remains fully human even to this day, even though he's ascended into the presence of the Father. The word, the word who shined on the mountain more brightly than Moses ever did because Jesus actually is a light, not a reflection. Isn't that beautiful? The word that we can experience personally 
just as Peter and James and John did when Jesus touched them and said to them, Rise and have no fear. The word who is indeed a better word, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, than the word of the covenant that Moses brought down the mountain. Better because Jesus was mediating a better new covenant involving final, once and for all, forgiveness of sins and the obsolescence of ongoing sacrifices on account of sacrificing himself, breaking his body and shedding his blood. Better because the new kingdom, the new covenant, establishes an unshakable kingdom that will endure the final judgment and culminate in eternal kingdom worship on the heavenly Mount Zion. Better because on that heavenly mountain, we will enjoy, as a people of God, the full yet entirely unmediated glory of God. At Sinai, the Israelites couldn't even touch the mountain lest they die. They had to stand back. Jesus died, refusing to stand back despite the cost of ascending Calgary so that we could ascend Mount Zion and live, still fearing God, still fearing God, but now in the kind of way, listen to this, that a groom trembles with joy when he gets the first glimpse of his bride on his wedding day. That kind of fear. That's what we're talking about on Zion. Unbridled joy that affects us physically. So much so that we might even shed a tear. Jesus died and rose that he might comfort sinful people who, who rightly, by the way, cower in the face of God's holiness by telling them, Rise and have no fear. Replace that fear with this new kind of fear. And then in lifting up our heads in hope, we see the face of Jesus. And then in seeing the face of Jesus, our, our fear of death, it melts into this reverent, trusting, joyful fear of the Lord, which ultimately leads us to Zion's summit. Jesus is a word. But are we listening? He's the word, but are we listening? You know, some of us have, in response to the charge that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 4, some of us have repented because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in, in looking to Jesus, we have found full and complete forgiveness in the one who fulfills the law and the prophets, the one to whom the law and the prophets have always pointed. So in that sense, we've listened to Jesus, the word. But are we still listening this Advent season? Listening being this very defiant act in a very noisy world. Have you ever thought of listening as defiance with some edge to it? Are we listening this Advent season? Are we regularly considering and, and meditating on Jesus' incarnation and his ministry and his crucifixion and his resurrection, and his ascension, and his heavenly session. 
and his imminent return? Are we listening to the best word in the history of the universe? Or are we going to spend that time catching up on some tweet threads? Or maybe in light of, this is kind of for millennials, I suppose, this one right here. Try to be kind of gracious and broad here. But this is very much from, in light of, so Jason David Frank passed away uh, a week or so ago. He played both the green and the white Power Ranger. And he was a professing Christian, by the way. In light of his passing, are millennials going to hop on BuzzFeed and and read articles, you know what they are. You're gonna, are you going to read articles like, you know, Jason Frank's Top 40, Who's Your Daddy Moments, and Mighty Morphin Power Rangers? Are we going to go read that kind of stuff? You know? And it sounds kind of like a joke when you say it out loud, but these days that's precisely the kind of content that tends to keep us from listening to Jesus. How about this? The next time you open the pages of God's Word, consider... Consider this when you open Scripture, that the God of Mount Sinai, the one who speaks with thunder and told the Israelites not to even touch the mountain lest they die, that same God is now speaking to us directly in the Scriptures, which testify to Jesus, the word who was and is God. Our boredom, our apathy concerning Scripture, it's not a problem with the Scriptures themselves. It's a problem concerning our understanding of what the scriptures truly are and our difficulties in understanding the grace of God and giving them to us in the first place. The God of Mount Sinai has revealed himself in these pages. Isn't that at least a little bit compelling? The Jesus who put on flesh and endured the cross and rose again has revealed himself in these pages. You can read the Power Rangers thing. Maybe, maybe five-minute break is okay. The real power. That's an interesting kind of Power Rangers pun there. The real power is in these pages. And the Holy Spirit delights in helping us see what's been revealed, that we might really hear it and understand it. We're not just journeying out there alone. We have the Holy Spirit with us, guiding us, helping us see and hear and understand and be changed. Some of us don't know Christ. Some of us here do not know Christ. And my prayer for you this morning in this Advent season is that you would listen and believe that Jesus is the better word. That's my prayer for you. Better than any words the world is telling us. Better than any words you're telling yourself. Words that seem to take turns, kind of puffing us up and tearing us down. He's the word who promises forgiveness and freedom and rest. He's the word who gives us meaning and purpose in a world that feels increasingly more vapid and meaningless. That word is for you. Are you listening? Will you listen? And let me end with this. Jesus is the word. Will we obey? As God said at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We believe that the life Jesus calls us to, though it requires, and I quote, denying ourselves and taking up our cross, we believe that life is still a life of abundance and flourishing, 
Do we believe that that life is, a, is the wisest way to live in the world? Do we believe that to the extent that we live obediently, we can actually glimpse Zion now as much as we can in this beautiful world that's nonetheless stained by sin? Do we believe that one of the ways to wait expectantly for heaven is to live like that's where we're going? And as we live like this, give people a glimpse of that heavenly mountain. Amen.